Welcome to the Life Science and Marketing Podcast, where we discuss marketing and career insights and tips with leading experts from across the globe. Let's join our host, Paul Avery, CEO of Biostrata, as he chats with our next Life Science Marketing guest. So today on the podcast, we have Laura Haldane. Laura has a degree in psychology from Queen's University, Belfast. She has worked in a number of sales and marketing roles before she co-founded SciLeads in 2015, where she's currently VP of sales and marketing. She also sits on the board of SAMPS, which is a professional network for sales and marketing professionals in science. I've known Laura for quite a while now. She's very knowledgeable in a number of areas, and hopefully we'll dig deep into those during this podcast interview. Laura, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Paul. Lovely to be here. Funny that you say we've known each other for a long time when we only actually finally got to meet in person because of COVID very recently. Absolutely. It doesn't feel that way anyway. No, it's funny. With video, you sort of get to know people a little bit. But yeah, it was very nice to meet you in person there the other week, though, I have to say. Um, So to kick us off, why don't you just tell us a bit about yourself? Tell us your story. How did you end up where you are today? Yeah, so as you said, I, I did my degree in psychology, so maybe not a typical guest in your show. I suspect a lot of people would have that really staunch scientific background. I do try to claim that psychology is science degree, and my husband rolls his eyes because he's a physicist through and through and tells me that I can't possibly get away with saying that. But it is technically considered a science. So I, I mostly did that because at the time, I just really wanted to do software sales. I wasn't actually, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't want to be a life science person. I wanted to be a software salesperson, which is an odd thing to even want to be when you grow up, when you're a child, but that's what I wanted to be. I was somewhat obsessed with Richard Branson, very obsessed with Richard Branson. My dad got my the autobiography when I was like pretty young. It was called Losing My Virginity. And my mom was like, you can't get her that. And dad was like, no, 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 it's about losing his company. But it wasn't appropriate at all to give to whatever 12-year-old at the time. But <laughs> Um, it, I read it I, like completely through and through. I was obsessed with it. So that's always what I wanted to do. And then when it came to doing a degree, I kind of didn't know what degree got you to be an entrepreneur. There wasn't an entrepreneurship degree. So I considered doing law and then it just sounded so boring. No offense to the, any lawyers listening. So, um, I decided I'll just, I'll do psychology because it would be really interesting. And I could probably bluff a little bit in interviews from a sales point of view and a marketing point of view that, you know, it, it lends itself to that. But actually it does. I mean, it does lend itself to that. But the other big thing that the psychology was great for was even like, my husband says it's not a science, but it is. So we did do lab papers, you know, we published, you had to learn about abstracts and, you know, conclusions, you know, it really did sort of sow that the scientific seed. And then there was a big company in Belfast called Randox that do reagents, among other things. They were very heavily involved in COVID testing, um, if you know of them from that. And they just had a big thing where they said anyone that got a first in a, in a scientific principle come and interview with us. So that's really what got me into the life sciences. I started there. It was a graduate program where the idea was that it sort of pushed you around each aspect of the business. I started in marketing, then I went to sales, and then they were going to put me into like finance or something. And I was like, nope, um, I know what I want to do now. So um, then I started working in Andor technology, which it was a cool one because we're talking about life science here, but actually they sell both to material research and life science. 
you know, we sold cameras that went on the microscopes and we didn't really care if those microscopes were looking at cells or if they were looking at gold or, you know, some material. So that makes me kind of agnostic as well. If you ever hear me say life sciences, I don't really mean it. It's just because um, it's better SEO to say life sciences than it is to say applied and material in life sciences. Um, and we have pivoted every time we do our marketing now rather than just focus on the life sciences because those selling you know, mass specs into the the applied, they have the same problems that we sort of see in the life sciences as well. So it doesn't mean anything. Um, and then after that, I went to a software company, which is closer to where I wanted to be. And it just so, it turned out that the market was in NGS. So it basically accelerated your computing. I was doing business development. It was a small company. So I had to really go out and just find out where our niche was. So I did a lot of like oil and gas conferences, which is, a lot more fun than life science conferences outside of that. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you can tell us more about that on the podcast <laughs> or whether we have to pick it up afterwards. <laughs> so, but much yeah, to my disappointment, I determined that the best market for that at the time was um, NGS because it was pretty new uh, at the time and they were trying to really co- cope with all the data and the processing power that they needed for that. So that put me back into the life sciences and then thereafter then um Daniel, who I co-founded Sideways with, he actually had worked with me in Andor, where we were both trying to come up with an idea. And then James, who's our CTO, he and I had gone to school together. So we've actually set up various companies throughout our, our lifetime from we were about 11. Um, so then, uh, yeah, when it came to this life science, Dan was like, oh, okay, we should automate basically our, our lead generation he went off and built that. I introduced um, James and himself. And then they, once they had it built, I came and um, sold it then, just kind of building on everything that I learned. And it was kind of easy because we were, were selling to sales and marketing professionals that are selling into the life and applied research. So we're selling, we just made it for ourselves. We just made exactly what we wanted. So it was quite cool. We still don't, you know, need to do an awful lot of like product marketing and interviewing of people because well customers tell us but we also just know inherently what we would want because we did it for so long so that's why i'm here that's awesome um for those that don't know Sileads, what give us the sort of one minute on what Sileads does the platform it's basically lead generation for science so it's the lead generation platform with all of the stuff that you would expect to see you know in the, a generic one but it's for science so we've got things like what publications people are doing which means you're allowed to see what competitors they're using because you can see their method and materials you can see what trade shows they're going to so you can bump into them at AACR or you know that it's just a lot more scientific context when it comes to lead generation that allow you to be a bit more specific about your outreach and there's a there's a tool that lets you see what labs in the states are investing in is that right yeah, so it allows you, the Americans are crazy about the information that's publicly available over there. So we can actually ask every public institution, you know, what did you buy? And it's not just, you know, what the labs are investing in, it's how much, you know, toilet paper or staplers they've bought. It also happens to be how many microscopes they've bought or what reagents they buy and the price of that as well. So that's really useful when it comes to looking at sort of competitive landscapes and stuff like that. Very interesting stuff. What about outside of work? What are you passionate about outside of work? And I know how hard you work, Laura. So if the answer is, is <laughs> I wish there was time, I'll accept it. Um, but yeah, go on. Tell us a bit more about what you do outside of work. 
well, you do know I like to double up. So when we had a call the last day I was gardening, I was doing my weeding at the same time. So gardening would be a big thing of mine. I'm somewhat obsessed with, um, yeah, my greenhouse and doing my stuff from seeds. But it does lend itself quite nicely to work because we work remotely in silage. A lot of the calls, whenever I don't need to be on camera, I'll just stick on the headset and I'll be outside deadheading or watering and, and sorting that out. So that would be a big one. Um, and then we do a lot as well with the dog rescues and I say we meet myself and my husband the dog rescues in Ireland we would have always fostered dogs and had a lot of dogs around again just potter and run the garden after me on conference calls it again helps when you work from home um and then we've uh I do a lot to sort of promote dogs and try to get them rehomed I have Instagram posts and I have Facebook pages and I yeah do a lot a lot in that it's probably you could probably count that as work but it's not work because it's um in my spare time but that really helps me actually from other marketing angles because obviously Salades is very B2B whereas this is more not quite B2C because they're not selling anything but I had to install threads today this morning right the new uh, you know. the new meta platform yeah yeah so, I mean, it's just, it means that I have to keep more on top of, I mean, Silates doesn't have a TikTok, so I would have been able to just ignore that part of the world and pretend it isn't happening. But with the dog thing, I need to keep on top of all aspects of marketing. So it keeps me a bit fresh as well, which is nice. Oh, I love that. Well, we're going to return to that in a, in a little while. So keep that in your mind, because I want to dig okay. into uh, <laughs> your marketing experience and what you've learned. And um, and we shouldn't restrict ourselves to what you've just learned in the life sciences, because I think there's loads of interesting things to be found in other sectors that we can we can bring in. But before we get to that, we've done the life bit. Let's talk a little bit about science. Um, you mentioned working in NGS and obviously as in your role with Siley, you get to speak to lots of different companies doing lots of cool stuff. What's the sort of most interesting product or project that you worked on and, and why? So again, I'm not a scientist and I have to say that, you know, while we have to understand a little bit about a lot of things, we certainly don't delve in. A lot of my colleagues delve in more because they've come out of the lab or they have sold like very specific pieces of equipment for longer. Whereas I would kind of call myself, you know, jack of all trades, master of absolutely none. Uh, but for me, the most interesting ones are the ones that I don't, I can't wrap my head around, like CRISPR, those gene editing things. You know, they're the ones that go down best at parties. Um, and I do, I, did you follow the story of the Chinese scientist that um, CRISPRed the embryos and then um, let the babies be born, which is illegal, and then he ended up in jail? I did, yeah. So he had um, removed a gene called CCR5 from the embryos, but when I, back in the good old days of 23andMe, before the FDA completely regulated it, you got a lot more information when you did your... Um, sequencing so we did it as soon as 23andMe came out we sequenced our DNA and I don't have that CCR5 gene so I can't get HIV or Ebola or those sort of things um, but I, if I got Western Nile virus I'm completely snickered so it's not actually a particularly good mutation to have although it does help with memory and things like that um, but that's so I've always found the CRISPR stories quite interesting because that's what the he'd removed my gene, if you will. Um, but I, it just baffles me. And when something like that baffles me, you just know that it's like it's crazy. It's like it's like our AI conversations that we have as well. Whenever they're baffling, it's just like, oh, my goodness, this is going to be huge. Yeah, the curiosity is is triggered. I didn't realize you got your um, DNA sequenced early on in the 
in the emergence of these tools. I got mine sequenced via a platform called Circle DNA, and it was quite quite informative. Um, but yeah, it sounds like when you did 23andMe, you got a lot more information than they get now. You got so much. I mean, it was too much, and that's why it was rightly regulated, because you were given a lot of information that if you weren't a scientist and you didn't have that sort of probability head on you, then you would maybe make decisions based on this data that were perhaps in crack. But it basically had so many different diseases that you can think of, and then you were ranked compared to the rest of the population. So um, like my top one was celiac, so I'm like something crazy, like 30 times more likely than the general population to be still have celiac disease. I understand that that's still like not point not percent likelihood, you know, but if someone told you you were 30 times more, there were people making decisions that based on this data that weren't really um, the correct ones for them. So that's why it was more heavily regulated. But it was, it was really cool. I did it partly for the health thing. And then also I'm really into the sort of genealogy aspect as well. So I actually have my... I've sequenced like four times over because I want to be on each of the different platforms um, for all of the, the the genealogy. And actually, I had um, a family from Philadelphia staying with me last weekend who um, we met. I know who they are now because we've tra- tracked the family tree, but we met purely on the DNA and we're able to then make that match. And they were thrilled. And they've this is actually the second time they've been here and um, meeting all of their Irish relatives. So I love that as, as well. I and mean, it's so funny that the science sort of you know, it seeps in even like the gardening you say outside of work, but like the gardening, there's a scientific element to that in terms of like getting the soil quality correct. And, you know, even we were making cider from the apples from the apple tree and, you know, we have pH meters and everything all around the face. It looks like a lab. So, I mean, it does creep into everything whenever you're, you're doing it. But yeah, the sequencing really helps with the genealogy as well. I agree. But I also happen to know that you don't do things by halves. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me to hear um, uh, how you've got involved um, in all of that. Um, let's talk about something else that you've got involved in a lot, which is which is marketing and sales over the over the last few years. Um, you know, it's really underpinned most of your career. So, what do you think is the hardest thing about sort of science marketing and sales for you? You know, what's the b- biggest challenges we face? So it's funny because obviously right now, I my sales and marketing isn't to scientists or well ex-scientist Austin and they're now more in the sales and marketing field but certainly whenever I was um, selling and doing the marketing towards the scientists themselves they're just so busy and I know everyone is busy I know everyone is busy but they are so busy and there is a lot of pressure in the field like a lot more than anyone would know unless they're in it in terms of like getting research out and getting grants and how competitive it is so trying to get in front of them can be more difficult just purely due, due to that sort of the busyness of them and then you know we say that the science seeps into every aspect of your life once you have the bug but you know obviously the scientists are the same so being skeptical about things you know you have to make sure that you've got your data and you've done your work it, to me it it makes it easier in a way though because if you if you know your product well enough and you can answer the questions I was very young when I first was out in the field and you know, I was only 22 and um, my territory was Scandinavia and the Baltics, which is a beautiful um, side of the world, particularly when you're a young woman out on the world on your own. Um, so I think they were always a wee bit shocked then when I did actually know the products as well as I knew them. And that's really all all they want from you is, yeah, know the products and get back to them when you say that you're going to, although that's a pretty Scandinavian specific trait. Um, 
but that was what I learned so long as I did those two things and it wasn't it was quite easy actually and in terms of marketing it was actually the precursor to to silage is kind of how I did a lot of my I don't know if you call it sales or marketing it was sort of a blend whenever I looked after Scandinavia I don't know if you've worked in that region before but they take like six weeks off in the summer and like everything stopped and whenever I was working there I had nowhere to go there was no one to see everyone was away there wasn't even anyone to email so all like all I could do to fill my time was just sit on the CRM get new leads go through all the university websites we sold the biologist physicists get them all in and then come October when they came back then I was able to just have a fresh pot of leads to say hey I'll be here and I just basically structured my visitations I'll be in Copenhagen this time I'll be in um, you know Karolinska this day and because it was fresh, gorgeous leads, the response was incredible compared to just hitting a stale CRM, you know. So that actually was the precursor to to Silates because my boss at the time was like, this is amazing. Can you do this for a market? And it's like, no, it just took me four months to do like a <laughs> tiny region. Um, and that's why the when Dan was like, actually, you know, there's probably a way to automate what you just did for four months. Um, so that's sort of where I was born from. I love that. I love that when you get people who can see problems from a different angle and if you mix them together, you can really come up with innovative solutions, right? Because if you hadn't seen that opportunity, you could almost ask, you could almost say that there's an element of serendipity to having that six to to eight weeks off, right? That actually pushed you to go, okay, well, I'm going to do this. And then someone who comes from a more software automation driven side can then see the, the opportunity in what you're doing. So that's that's really cool. I also love me a bit sad though because I oh, really? absolutely loved it. It was like we now have a robotic vac or lawnmower in the garden, and I love it, but it makes me really sad because I really love to cut the grass, and that's the same. I really love those six to eight weeks sitting there with my headphones in, doing my lead gen, making my CRM so clean. There's something <laughs> lovely about that, but yeah, I know that it is more helpful to you than <laughs> That's probably quite a good um, precursor to where we might be heading with AI and how we might feel if AI takes on a lot of the tasks that actually used to give us great satisfaction. Yeah, I know. And then it sort of is like, it feels like inefficient because you show me that uncropped tool and it, it really does make me sad because I, I really loved with the dogs whenever I'm pr- promoting them on Instagram, I need to square them. But quite often I'm getting portraits, so I have to build out the sides. That was sort of part of my magic that I would go into Photoshop and build out these sides, these photos. And you just show me that uncropped tool that just goes bloop. And it's like, oh, OK, I'm no longer needed. <laughs> It's a bit of a shame, isn't it? Because um, <laughs> there's a, there's an element of creative expression and problem solving mm. that's quite satisfying yeah. in that. Hopefully we'll see other things emerge that we can be creative with or there'll be bits that AI just sucks at for quite a while and we'll be able to lean into those. I'm, I'm sure that will be the case. Um, yeah. You talked a little bit about how hard it is to get in front of scientists and how busy they are. And we were together at SAMPS recently for the SAMPS European um, conference in Glasgow. And one of the things I love that SAMPS does is, and if you're not a member of SAMPS Life Science Marketers listening, you should go check it out because I think there's a lot of um, useful content there and it's it's free to register. For yeah, SAMPS. yeah, absolutely free, yeah. Um, so you have an Ask the Scientist section, right, where marketing and sales folk can actually pepper these four scientists with questions to better understand, um, you know, how to reach them and how to, you know, how to interest them in things. What would you say have been the sort of one or two most interesting learnings you've taken away from one of those Ask the Scientist sessions? 
Yeah, this is what actually really attracted my attention whenever I heard about SAMHSA. So that was about like 2017, I think, in San Francisco. And this idea that they had these scientists just sitting there and you could just ask them all of the things that we used to sit around a table and debate. Now you could just actually ask them, you know, the big thing for me is that they actually preferred to, to speak to one another. So they didn't really necessarily want to speak to a salesperson about the product and what it was doing. They'd much prefer if they could find a fellow scientist and ask them about the product that they already had. And they they also said that they love even if they're in the same institution to throw them into a room, throw some like buns and coffee at them, good coffee, and close the door and walk away. That was that always every year that's what comes out. And it's always funny because then people are like, well, what do I do if I'm new to the market? And that is actually a really difficult one. And they can say that that's actually quite difficult to enter the market because you don't have those references. You don't have the publications, which is what they want to see. And mm. um, so that is an interesting one. And also that they, they want technical salespeople is typically what comes out of there as well. You know, they don't need the tips and tricks to try and close the sale. They just want someone that they will go quite far actually themselves within the spec sheets and things like that to try and determine a question, get an answer. So if they actually go to the trouble of speaking to a person, they definitely want to make sure that they get the answer and the person's technical enough or I suppose is able to field them to a technical specialist. So they're, they're the big things that come up and it's the same things every time. This year, Twitter came out top actually, which surprised me because we probably don't use it enough. But the scientific, the academics are using it a lot to to learn and to keep on top top of things. So that was one big thing that I sort of realized we need to pivot and use. There's my um, why well, I got threads running as well, just in case that becomes a big thing. I wanted to get my handle, you see, because my problem is if you don't get in at the beginning, you get a really terrible handle with like loads of like zeros and ones. Because with my Gmail, I had a beautiful one for my maiden name and then I went and got married. And now I have a really terrible email address because, you know, I wasn't there. So obviously before, like, as soon as my daughter was born, I got her her proper Gmail without her, like, you know, I'll stay on top of that for her. That's the least I can do. So, but yeah, um, Twitter was a big thing that came out in that chat as well, particularly this year that um, they, they really want to use that, which is interesting. That is fascinating. I like the concept of, um, I'm really happy to be married um, to you, but <laughs> it took me a lot of work to get my Gmail account, so I will be keeping my work. maiden name. <laughs> a lot of work. A lot of work. I actually did for a while, you know, try to keep my maiden name for work as well, but it just got so confusing. That was actually my plan. Now, if I were to get married now, I probably would have to rethink it because it is it's quite a big thing. You know, like Paul Avery, if I went to even try to email you and I couldn't find you, it can be quite frustrating. So it's an interesting concept, probably not for today, but I probably would, wouldn't change it now, actually, now that I'm sort of further on and, you know, people might recognize my surname or look for me. Well, you've got a personal brand. And actually, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about is some of the um, tips and tricks you gave about using LinkedIn at the recent SAMS conference, which certainly opened my eyes. You know, I thought I was reasonably good at LinkedIn, but by the time your session was finished, I, re I rolled my sleeves up. I realized... <laughs> I had work to do. And of course, now with as many followers as you've got, your name is your brand. And I think like any rebrand, you'd have to think about the pros and cons yeah. of the brand equity in your name and changing it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, could you could you share a little bit of your experiences on LinkedIn and, and the common mistakes that you've seen and, and how to fix them? Because I think, I think there's a lot of us thinking we do it well. Um, but you taught me that probably most of us could do it better. So I'd love it if you could just share a few of those with the with the listeners today. 
Yeah, I mean, it was just, it's really what we used at the beginning of Sally's and also we continue to use it a lot. It's a great way. Now, again, we are selling to sales and marketing professionals. So the people that are selling to academia, it's still very useful. It's probably not quite as useful for them because not all of the academics are in that. But to be honest, like the vast majority of them are. And if you're selling into biopharma at all, you want to find those researchers that are in the you know, pharma companies that are definitely on there as well. And it's a great way to get them. Uh, it's all, you know, GDPR compliant to reach out to someone on LinkedIn. So that's what we do. We have done a lot of IB testing and the profile really does make a big difference. So whenever I'd started, it was actually a SAMP uh, meeting. It was that one in San Francisco. There was a girl doing a talk on LinkedIn. And at that point, we were kind of coming out of that sort of recession-y bit where, you know, people had sort of fallen out of love with companies and people, you know, people buy from people. And what she had said was, to make your LinkedIn stand out, you should put something, you know, a bit weird on it. So she had parallel parking, that she was an excellent parallel parker. And I and I just thought this was genius and I can't put that on because I'm I'm a terrible, truly terrible driver. I shouldn't even be allowed. <laughs> um and I don't actually for that reason most of the time. It like yeah, it's just not a skill that I have. Um so anyway, I put on that I was an extra in Game of Thrones because Game of Thrones filmed here in Belfast. It's not that it's not that cool if you're in Belfast because everyone's an extra in Game of Thrones, you know, like they just sort of lived with us for, you know, seven, eight years. But I put that on and it because my market was primarily in the state. When I went to message them then to say, like, you know, can I see you at Neurosense? Can I call by the booth? They didn't even care what I was trying to speak to them about so long as I told them whether, you know, Jon Snow was still alive or not. So <laughs> that was huge for us. It also made us more, it makes you more of a person if you have that sort of detail on your LinkedIn and it really, it really increases your conversion in terms of acceptance. So if I add people on LinkedIn, about 65% of them will just accept me. Some of them will just not be using LinkedIn. Um, that's, there's nothing you can do about that. And then some of them just won't accept people that they don't necessarily know. I have tried emails, but they're just absolutely not. Just don't work. Just don't even go there. Just don't even use them. Um, so basically, whenever we get new people that come into the company now, we know that on average, a bad LinkedIn profile, if I could use it that way, of someone that has no experience in the industry or hasn't really refined their LinkedIn very much well, it's about one in four it will be their acceptance rate. So they know if they want to speak to someone in a particular company, if they add four of them, then statistically speaking, one will accept and then they're able to send them a wee message. Um, but one thing that I do, so I get, when someone comes into the company, make sure they have a nice photo. I mean, like the amount of people I still see where you can kind of like see their husband's shoulder and like half pint of beer and you quite clearly they're out in a night out. Like just if you don't have a professional photo, just like go in front of a white wall and take yourself a selfie. Like it's really not that difficult to get a sort of halfway respectable one. And I'm looking at you for this as well, because uh, your LinkedIn photo, I'm sure you've had loads of professional photos over the time and you don't have one up there. Um, do you know why because i got quite fat on my professional pictures so i all look a bit chubby okay. so i'm like i can't yeah. I, i'll have to lose weight first and then i'll do it but yeah you mentioned that at the event i thought oh crumbs yeah the pictures are not great <laughs> that would be a big one that's your first one for sure um and then there's a tagline at the top that says you know what you do and if it's just boring you know i sell stuff people aren't even gonna really be inclined to accept you so I have their Game of Thrones extra. I mean, you should have, I don't know, AI expert or whatever you, you want to put in there. And then people are much more likely to accept you. But then you've got your about us and your, you know, profile history. 
and your work experience, nobody really cares. Like nobody genuinely cares about your work experience. They'll just scan down to look at logos they recognize. And then like a one-liner of like why it was cool is so much more interesting to people than like whether you like increased SEO by 300 million. I don't, we don't care really. We're just scanning down to sort of see what you what you did to see if, you know, you resonate with us. So what I've told everyone is go through their LinkedIn. It shouldn't read like a resume, just first person, why that particular work experience was useful and why it got you where you want to be. And in your about us, do you put in more about like, you know, what you're into, you know, if you are obsessed with Diet Coke or whatever, which I am actually, so I'm a wee bit saddened by the news that's coming out this week to say that it's even more unhealthy for me than I knew inherently it was. <laughs> um, you know, but put that in because other people will be like, you know, they'll be able to, you know, get together and we can all be sad about our Diet Coke habit that we all need to try and probably kick. Yeah, that was bad news, wasn't it? I drink a lot of Diet Coke as well. But but I think you're right. It's um, There's an opportunity to really humanize yourself. And it's almost like we used LinkedIn profiles to dehumanize ourselves. And humans connect with humans. I think that's very powerful. After your session, the one thing I was able to take action on in real time is updating my tagline. And I think I include, uh, included a DJ and retired fire juggler. And oh, nice. within four days, someone had replied to me, on a connection request to say oh i'm a dj as well what music do you like right because it because it's a conversation starter and so um that was quite good for me to see the the theory turn into actual delivering results in practice you also mentioned the pros and cons of sort of automating aspects of outreach which i've also been trialing with and i get about a 40 percent connection rate imagine if i improve my picture for a (laughs) go um imagine if i got some um facial reconstructive surgery and then improve oh, no, i don't no, know no. Just, go. A lovely, just a lovely picture <laughs> i mean there is a there's a sort of catch 22 here in that the more connections you get the more likely people are to accept you so it's sort of unfair it's again that sort of story of what do you do when you start from the beginning and you don't have that already mm-hmm. so as you start to build that up then you'll find as well it is much easier to just have people accept you because if you're sitting with you know 500 connections in common they're like oh okay she's she's legit I can say that she's connected to him so I'll accept her as well but but yeah that's great that you're actually um <laughs> you changed that as well I'll keep an eye it's nice as well when you sort of IB test that tagline because I did try putting the Irish genealogy there because I thought in theory that should you know work quite well given my audience is primarily the U.S. But it didn't actually work as well as Game of Thrones because at the time I was like, well, it's kind of a wee bit old now. Unfortunately, the House of Dragons wasn't filmed here, so I wasn't able to refresh. Right. Um, but it's still actually, even though it is kind of getting a bit old now, it's still the the best one that I have. Um, so I've kept it in there until I do something more interesting. I love that sign doing an A-B test and having a hypothesis, right? <laughs> yeah. Hypothesis. Did it improve things or not? Come up with a new hypothesis and, and test something else. And, yeah. you know, quite a lot of our the people listening to the podcast will be marketers. Um, I think there'll be some sales folk in there who obviously, I, I think, can see the benefit of growing their network and, and leveraging that as part of their sales outreach. But I think also most professional people should be looking at building their network. There's that old saying, your, your net worth is your network. I'm not sure if that's entirely true, but there's something to it. And also... As marketers, we're creating a lot of content. 
and we're looking to distribute it. And sometimes we need to lean on other people in our businesses to share our content for us on their LinkedIn profiles because perhaps they have bigger and better networks. And obviously that's very powerful, but it introduces a friction step because yeah. we need to pass the content to them or we need to try and get them to reshare it. Um, so creating and maintaining your own network as a marketer makes sense for for a lot of reasons. And as you said, it takes a while to build, but um, best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. Second best time to plant a tree is today. So let's um, let's take that advice on and, and get cracking on that because I think you make a, you've made a great case here and, and certainly did in that session as to all the benefits we can all get. One point as well that I, we hadn't covered there is that LinkedIn does limit you in your connection request. So you only have 120 a week. So this isn't something that you can sit over the summer, for example, and, and just blitz. You have to kind of just build it now into your daily life that you want to get to your 120 max every week. So it's just something that you just have to build in Monday morning, send a few meeting requests, you know, our connection requests, just a, it's a new workflow. Good stuff. Um Right, let's, um, we're going to pontificate now on the past. Um, if you could go back in time 10 years, what piece of professional advice would you give to yourself? I'm not totally sure if I would interfere, if I'm honest. If, if I knew what I know now about what the last 10 years would be, I would have been actually very overwhelmed, particularly at the beginning of Siley. And I think all of us would have been because it, it, was, it was really hard work. It still is really hard work, but I mean, it was like crazy travel and crazy hours I mean you mentioned I work crazy hours now but like back then I just didn't sleep on a Thursday that was my only way to have any weekend I just knew that I didn't sleep on a Thursday and mostly I was traveling at the weekend anyway because I did about three scientific conferences in America a month so I, the customs guys like definitely thought I was up to no good I had a few <laughs> dodgy stamps in my passport but they don't like it when you come back from America for one day and then go back again they find that very bizarre um, so I was back and forth, but it, it felt like it was, you know, short term and like, we'll, we'll build it up. We'll hire more people and, and, and now like there's 60 people, but no one told us like that then, you know, scaling from 60 to the 200 mark is even more difficult. And then, it, so it's like, we kind of only needed to know our tiny slice and just think of that. I think they do this a little bit with children. You know, they tell you once they're out of newborns and it's easier, but then they start walking. Oh, but once they're out of toddler, then you've got the terrible twos. And now I'm here and apparently teenagers aren't actually that easy at all. So like, I think <laughs> you only need this little bit of information to keep going. And if you knew it all, you kind of would be like, Good, goodness me. So part of me wouldn't interfere at all. Um, I would tell myself to go and get better handles, Twitter handles. I'd probably tell myself if I could tell them everything just to buy all the URLs so I could tell them. Um, but mostly, and I probably would say, as you said, to plant the trees earlier, start off and not all of those even if I think I didn't need them um, and that's again my logic and getting threads this morning as soon as it's out um, to make sure that I'm getting there from the beginning for each of these marketing tools but mostly I'm like you know pretty happy to to be doing what I'm doing I mean I really really enjoyed it I really enjoy the um, every every day of Silids it does help that I work with my friends and we've built such a fun team and we because we work remotely as well it's you know, you feel like you have that that balance to do your gardening or, you know, be there with your dogs as well. So um, I don't know if I would want to butterfly effect anything by telling me anything back then. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective. A little bit of naivety can actually be quite 
helpful. And there was, um, I'm going to probably get this wrong because I'm not great with the details, but I think I was listening to a podcast with Mark Andreessen the other day. And he was asked why he, because he invests in businesses, why he hadn't started more. And he said, because you have to have a special type of mindset to be a founder because you need to, and it's, it was something along the lines of, you need to, what you're going to do is get punched in the face continually and you just need yeah. to learn to like the taste of your own blood. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know about that, but you <laughs> you need to be so steadfast in what you're doing is like absolutely the right thing. And you'll know this yourself as well with your, your company. You just need to know that even if one person doesn't get it, that's okay. You know, you just sort of dust yourself off and move on. But I do think having... I couldn't be a sole founder. I need that, you know, that that support to be able to ring up and sort of like rant and then kind of get that reassurance and then move on again. And I think we all need that. I think it'd be very difficult if you were just on your own to try and take all those punches. Yeah, it, would be. it helps that, you know, the community that we're working in are lovely. Oh, yeah. You know, scientists are lovely to work with and the people that we work with are sales and marketing, you know, ter- people within scientific companies but already that's you know the type of person that really likes to you know talk about scientific principles and debate things and they're sort of already our people and obviously they're never going to be particularly um unkind to you particularly given that they're sales and marketing people themselves so that is a really nice environment to work in when you're selling to you know one of your own if you will so i don't didn't taste my own blood as your man <laughs> and I, it wasn't that kind of market but um still um it's yeah it's nice to have that support yeah I agree it's when new people join our team especially if they're coming from outside of the life sciences we really try and help them understand that it's really rewarding to work in an industry where the people are so passionate about the the problem they're trying to solve, you know, whether it's cancer or climate change or uh, new technologies to help us understand biology better, whatever that may be. The people are so, it's almost, we call it B2B, but it's a weird, it's really not quite B2B. It's some, and I know I've heard people call it like business to scientist and what have you, but people are so passionate about what they do. Um, there's a bit of their souls in the game so they really care yeah. and and you can have really good conversations with people and if you're genuinely going to help them have the impact that they want to have they are very happy to talk with you and i that's not true in every industry i don't think so we are quite lucky yeah. i agree i also think it, if i were selling a product that wasn't in my career i've always sold the best products just by coincidence that just happens to be where I am and yeah if I were selling like cars or something I don't know if I'd be particularly good at it because it's quite easy if you're selling the best thing and you can just show people what you know it does for them so yeah I don't know if yeah I can claim to be a particularly good sales or or marketer it's just um it does help when you have a good product and it's a good fit yeah I agree well we should all be aiming for that I think it's great when you when you find yourself in a position where you are able to sell that and then other times maybe you have to be a bit more creative. But I think in many cases for a lot of products, they're probably strong in certain applications mm. or certain audiences and maybe they're not as good as the com- competition in other areas. And it's having that confidence to lean in to those customers and those markets where you really have something interesting to offer and, and knowing who's not your customer, at least yeah. in, the, in the beginning. Um, but it takes a lot of uh, confidence and bravery, I think, for a lot of a lot of companies to say, mm, right, we're not going to go after we're those. Go- yeah, we were quite lucky, actually, in Valid. Um, whenever we said, you know, the, the 
biopharma at the time market was to um, they weren't interested in our data because it was fairly academic focused. Now we've created that product and it's like, where do we put all them? But we still had them in the CRM. So I think that is, um, again, I don't need to say it to myself because that's what we always were sort of very CRM focused. But if I was to give some piece of advice, it's like just because that isn't your market now, don't just throw them away, keep them and just mark them, you know, in the appropriate way so that it's easy then when you do go in or if you go into that market to get them back. Mm, I think that's good advice. You've Once you've generated them, it's you may as well keep them until until that later time. Um, one last question then, because I want to be respectful of your time. Um, what would be your single best marketing or sales tip that you'd pass on to uh, a young professional entering our world? I mean, it has to be the LinkedIn, doesn't it? It's just like so wrapped up in silos and, and me and what, I, what I've done. I mean, there, there's two aspects of your LinkedIn. There's also being kind of, as you said, your personal brand. So I stopped straightening my hair partly out of laziness because it's much easier to not have to bother to straighten your hair. You just get out of the shower and walk out of, out of the house. Um, but it actually really helps, particularly when I was younger. I was selling mostly to older men and young 20-year-old girls with short brown hair kind of all look the same. I remember being at a conference in London and I spoke to this guy for ages and the next day I put my hair up and I think I'd taken my contacts out because they were annoying my eyes. And he like he had no idea how I was the next day because I had my hair up and glasses on. And I think this will apply to a lot of people, but you kind of need to stay consistent a little bit. And I have learned this. So now, again, it's laziness partly on my part, but you'll see me if I'm at conferences, I tend to be wearing very similar clothes. My hair will be in the same way. And it means then that if my LinkedIn profile is the right photo for it for me and it looks like me as well, there's no point we talked about having nice photos, but if it's too nice, people won't recognize me either. So I have to make it like a wee bit realistic. But it means then if they see me across the room at ACR, like they're pretty confident that that's me because, you know, that there's not that many people have that sort of hair and things like that. So that would be a big thing for me if you are, particularly if you're younger, it is easier to blend in. So if you can do one thing that kind of, they call it peacocking, don't they, that, you, you know, have, I don't know, you just wear only red shoes. Yeah. But it means that they'll remember you and it means that, you know, when it comes to a later date, they'll they'll be able to find you and things like that. Shoes probably doesn't lend itself very well for LinkedIn photos, maybe red hairband <laughs> or something. Um, but yeah, that would be my main bit of advice and then get your LinkedIn. Get, just start to build your brand because you will move around companies. Probably it's the thing to do now. You will you move and we see it with our, in our client base daily. You know, they're moving from one to another. So you will build bring that brand with you you'll bring your LinkedIn profile with you and building that from the beginning will help you get more jobs as well as um, make you yeah a better marketer and salesperson good stuff um thank you so much for spending a bit of time with me today Laura I really appreciate it if people wanted to get in touch with you what's the after hearing this what would be the best way for them to do that come on LinkedIn obviously (laughs) absolutely um just search for the Game of Thrones extra uh, if anything Um, yeah Look, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks again. I look forward to seeing you soon. No worries. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Life Science and Marketing Podcast. For your regular dose of cutting-edge life science marketing insights, don't forget to subscribe. Join us again in two weeks for another engaging expert discussion. 